Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. If you have your Bible and you are following along in your Bible, you'll notice that just prior, at the very beginning of the passage, there's a footnote. And the footnote indicates that this particular story is not found in the earliest manuscripts. Now, you may be like, what does that matter? Well, the current, the present translations that you and I have today, and there's so many, they are composed from manuscripts, and the older they are, and depending on how many there are, it tells us how reliable certain aspects may be, certain stories, because scribes over the years, they may add, they may take away. And so there is this um, study called textual criticism that is performed to determine what is genuine from the original manuscripts. So this is not. Now, uh, Sam and I, we talked for several days about whether actually to devote this sermon exclusively to that topic, but we decided against it. If you do have any questions, there is another plug for WhatsApp, but there is a WhatsApp for sermon questions. You're more than glad to chime in, or if you want to pull me aside, uh, we can talk about it. If you have your Bible, it'd be good to have it open throughout the message. So uh, um, as I sort of make my way through it, I think we're going to try to hit every verse here uh, as we go through it. And it's a wonderful passage. It's interesting, as I was sharing with the first service, um, one of the sermons that Pastor Sam referenced, I guess, in, before I joined Wellspring, was a sermon that I preached on this topic. Uh, and I was careful not to simply cut and paste everything I had preached there. In fact, I make it a habit to kind of toss out my notes to start from scratch. But it's interesting that today I find myself preaching from the same uh, story here. Even though our passage doesn't necessarily focus on the sin of adultery, I thought it'd be good to kind of start out by reminding us, and I think reminders necessary because 
I do think, from my opinion, that we today have, have grown numb to the idea of adultery. It's so rampant, and not to say, I mean, there's no way I can prove it's any more rampant than it was before, but I think because we are hit from so many different angles regarding sexuality, adultery, there are things that we have questions about, comments about, uh, when thinking about sin that just aren't mentioned in the Bible. And it's not to say because they're not mentioned that God doesn't care. But I do want to start off with some reminder that adultery in the eyes of God is sin. It is sin. And although we as preachers don't like to be cornered to say that one sin is different from another, there are varying degrees. In one perspective, there are varying degrees of sin as to how bad or how light or deep or whatever they may be. But adultery is one of those that it's as bad as it gets. And that's, again, hard for us to agree with on some levels because, again, we've, it's like hard to watch anything without seeing a sex scene. It's, like, it's hard to just even go and have a conversation about what's going on in school without eventually stumbling over the idea of sexuality. So much that's out there. I'm, I was scared to have my kids look at the internet. My oldest, um, we used to have one computer centrally located in our home, and my oldest loved reading sports websites. But for some of you who are familiar with sports websites, some of them have other links. <laughs> and I remember he clicked it, clicked something, and I could see peripherally, all of a sudden, everything started popping up. And he was preteen, and I ran over as quick as I could. And it might have been the longest 10 seconds of my life trying to figure out how in the world do I, I just pulled the cord shut it off. And, well, the, the talk of the birds and bees came a little early. So, but it's, it's tough. And even if you're someone who follows the Lord, you probably feel like you're being tempted at every corner, every moment. Adultery is one of 36 sins that is listed in the Bible that is worthy of the punishment of execution. You may say, that's a little over the top. God, that's a little too much. I mean, it doesn't, it's not a big deal, right? But let's put ourselves in those circumstances. So even if we were to narrow it down to what is being mentioned and referenced here in this story, which is the sin of a married man having sexual relations with a married woman. Okay, so even if we just limit it to that, if you're, a, if you're a child here, and I'm not saying in reference to your age, but if you've come with your parents, imagine if today you got home and your dad says, we need to have a talk. He sits you down, you and your siblings, and he says, daddy's done a bad thing. He's been unfaithful to mommy. What would be going on in your heart and mind? 
Or imagine, and I'll just pick on the men here. Imagine, women, you go home today, and your husband confesses he's cheated on you. What thoughts run through your mind? Disgust? Complete rejection? Betrayal? Hatred? Bitterness? You just wish that person did not exist anymore. So maybe the idea of stoning, not to say you'd pick up a stone, maybe you'd want to. It's not so far-fetched, is it? It's the only reason that Scripture gives, and this is another sermon, another debate and discussion, it's the only reason that Scripture gives that warrants divorce. You can't just simply wake up and my husband won't get up off the couch, so I want to divorce him. Or I just don't feel like I love him anymore. Those aren't in the Bible. It is adultery. The only one. So just even those two facts should indicate to you that for God, it's a serious. And in accordance with God's providence and sovereignty, I don't think it's an accident that adultery is the sin at the heart of the story. If it was just a white lie, then compassion looks really weak. Like imagine if your son or your daughter comes up to you, parents, and says, I did something really bad, Mom. Yeah, I think you need to sit down. And I hope you can forgive me. I had a cookie before dinner. You chuckle. You're like, okay, it's not a big deal. Don't do it again. But if it was something far worse, imagine your son coming home and says, Dad, I stole something. Or let's make it light. I cheated at school. Dad, I, I've been there. I crashed the car, <laughs> and I thought I was dying on that night, but, um, and that was several occasions, but I'm still here. It kind of it adds to the impact of it. So I think God, in his providence and his sovereignty, he took adultery, and to use a word, it sounds almost diabolical, but he uses that story, that sin, to really emphasize the greatness and the, the blessedness of his compassion. So we're going to kind of make our way through it. Again, if you have your Bible, it would be helpful to have it open. Uh, verses 3 to 6, we see the test that the Pharisees bring before Jesus, seeking to trap him uh, so they can have a charge against him. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Adultery is something that you can't really charge someone so easily in the Old Testament. It wasn't something that was charged often. The reason for that was the Old Testament law stipulated that you had to be caught in the act. It couldn't simply have been someone saying, well, I think this person is adulterous. You had to catch that person. Now, 
think about the fact that this woman has been caught by this group of men. They, did they really get that lucky to stumble over a woman in the act of adultery? On top of that, where's the man? We don't know. There's been spe there's speculation, and again, we just don't know. But was it that they even possibly had arranged with this man to trap this woman, and they let him go? Or maybe this man was just so quick off his feet and fast and nimble, and he just sped out there, just fled really quickly. That's possible, I guess. He's not around. But in the worst-case scenario, they are using, concocting evil to lure someone into evil so that they can bring down Jesus, so that they can test him. It's pretty bad. And these guys are the religious leaders of the time. This woman, she doesn't deny anything, and that's important to remember as we make our way through this passage. She doesn't deny anything. There's never at one point in the story where she says, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. They're lying. She, in her silence, admits to her guilt. In Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, we see the law of Moses stipulate that if you catch somebody in adultery, they are to be executed. Now, the test that the Pharisees bring to Jesus is this. Jesus, here's the law of Moses, which Jesus doesn't deny. He doesn't, he doesn't get into this theological debate or discussion and says, no, I think you misunderstood it or you misread it or you don't remember it properly. They remembered it well and accurately. And they are asking him, are you going to follow what Moses said, which sounds like a duh kind of response, right? Why wouldn't he? Well, here's the problem. If he follows what the law of Moses stipulates, then he's actually breaking Roman law, which gets him in trouble. You may remember in John chapter 18, where Jesus is before Pilate, and Pilate examines him, he asks him all these questions, and he determines that Jesus has done nothing wrong. And he turns to the Pharisees and he says, I don't know what the problem is here. You guys take him and you judge him according to your law. And their response to him is, well, we want to be good Roman citizens. So we're not actually allowed to execute him. Because that's why we've come to you. So it seems as though they've come up with this really good plan to trap him. Because no matter what he says, he's going to get in trouble with somebody. If he chooses Moses, he's in trouble with the Romans. If he chooses Rome, then they're going to say, well, how can you possibly be the son of God if you're going against the law of Moses? It's a pretty good test. Now, in verse 6 and uh, verse 8, we have this little detail where Jesus stoops over and he writes something in the ground. And it's funny, with this particular passage, more people, People seem to be more interested in what it doesn't say as opposed to what it says. And so there are a lot of sermons and there's a lot of speculation as to what he wrote. One person suggested that Jesus wrote the sins of the Pharisees and that as they were looking, they see their sins and they realize, ooh, he's got more on us than we do have, than we have on this woman. 
And that that's why they were so accepting of his um, charge that if you're sinless, then go ahead, stone her. But only if you're sinless. Now, again, we just don't know. We don't know. So there's no need to really speculate on that. But Jesus' response in verse 7 is this. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to stone or throw a stone at her. Now, what he's not saying is this. He's not saying only perfect people can judge other people because there's no such person. So those times when I would look to my parents and I wouldn't say it because I couldn't speak Korean anyway, but um, I would want to say, well, dad, you're, you do the same thing that I do. You're a hypocrite. So you have really no right to tell me that's really not what Jesus is saying. Because then that would be contradictory to other parts of the New Testament where Jesus does call us to be accountable to one another. Now, here's the thing as a side comment. Even if a hypocrite comes to you and charges you with a sin that you actually commit, the fact that they are a hypocrite bringing that to light doesn't change the fact that you have committed a sin. We like to weasel our way out of it by saying, well, you do the same thing. That doesn't change the fact that I have disobeyed God. So I'm not justifying the hypocrisy, but please know that if God brings the light, your sin, the best thing to do is just ask yourself, if I've done it, then you deal with it. Bring that to the Lord and seek his forgiveness. Now, that other person, that person needs to come to the Lord as well. Now, so Jesus is not telling us that you need to be absolutely perfect and sinless and perfectly obedient in order to bring someone else's sin to light. But here's a great quote by John Calvin that helps us understand. No man, therefore, shall be prevented by his own sins from correcting the sins of others and even from punishing them when it may be found necessary, provided that both in himself and in others he hate what ought to be condemned. And in addition to all this, every man ought to begin by interrogating his own conscience and by acting both as witness and judge against himself before he comes to others. In this matter shall we, without hating men, make war with sins." It's very similar to what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, where he brings up this teaching on judging others. And he says, how are you able to look at someone else and see a little speck in that person's eye when you have this log that's protruding from your own? It's actually quite comical. How are you first able to see, let alone not even notice or attend to this big log that's sticking out of your own eye, but you're so concerned about this little speck in someone else's. Sure, in those cases, we are hypocritical. In those cases, it's not motivated for love. It's not motivated for the glory of God to bring someone to a redeemed relationship with God because I don't care about my own. The sin hasn't affected me, in a sense, bringing me to my knees, asking for the mercy and the compassion of God. So am I really, honestly, sincerely motivated for that other person's well-being? No. Galatians 3, verses 23 to 24, Paul summarizes the purpose of the law, one of the primary purposes 
is that the law was intended to be a guardian to Jesus. Now, what does that mean? What Paul means is, and sometimes we use the word mirror. When God gave us the law in the Old Testament, first, he wanted to show, this is how holy I am. I know it sounds ridiculous. How in the world is anyone going to obey these? Well, that's how good I am. But the second part about it is, as, and speaking from God's side, as you try to obey what I have commanded you, you're going to find one thing. One, you can't. You can't do it. Now, there are two options from there. Either you try your best, and regardless of how well you do, you commend yourself, you praise yourself for doing a half-decent job. Or maybe you're actually really good at it. You're not perfect, but hey, 9 out of 10 is pretty good when most people get 3 out of 10 right. And that's what the Pharisees did. And that's what you and I often are tempted to do when it comes to obedience. We, our sinful hearts and the sinful residue that lies within, it loves obedience. Why? Because it makes us feel so good. And we feel even better when we compare ourselves with other people that can't or have failed. So here, they're, they may be even thinking, you know what, I've never outwardly committed adultery. Well, it's funny, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually says it's not just outward exercise of adultery that makes you guilty of the sin, it's also lust of the heart. So they're thinking, we're better than this woman. What, what Jesus is saying by charging them, hey, if you're sinless, cast the first stone, he's saying, you have failed to approach the law the way it was intended. The law was meant to be this mirror that reflects back to you that you have failed in being perfectly obedient to God, which he deserves, which he is worthy of. And then get to a point where, oh my goodness, I am without any hope. There's no way God's going to accept me. And you're right, the law cannot save you. But then do you walk away with your tail between your legs and thinking, oh well. Or that hopelessness drives you to plead for the mercy of God. And that's what they should have done. But instead, again, they were prideful and self-righteous because they were pretty good at it. And they knew it well. They could rehearse it well. So Jesus exposes their hypocrisy. The sad part is right there they had the opportunity to go to the one who would offer compassion. Rather, they simply walk away. They just walk away. And there are times where, and I think this is what was happening, I, I, this is my interpretation of what the Pharisees might have been thinking and feeling. I think they caught the glimpse of what Jesus was teaching on some level. I think they had the idea of compassion in their mind. It was kind of jumbled up. But it wasn't spot on to what Jesus wanted them to feel and understand and embrace. It's kind of like when I was little, I'd get in trouble all the time. All the time. My parents actually sent me to a school, a Christian school, for one year, simply because they couldn't afford it after that first year. Um, and I one day I asked my parents many, many, many years later, said, why did you only send me and not my older brother, younger brother? And my dad just said, straight up, because you were the worst. <laughs> now, 
this school is actually the school I ended up working at for eight years. And it's a school in the Christian tradition, the Reformed tradition. So it was a we are a Reformed school. And I think my parents thought, this school is going to reform my kid. So the times when I would get in trouble, oh, I felt bad. Why? Because I knew I was going to come out hurt physically. <laughs> I hope I'm not getting him in trouble. But, you know, I knew spanking was coming. I felt bad because I got caught. Now, for me, in my immaturity, I'm kind of mixing around and thinking, this is what guilt is. This is what remorse is. But really, there was no remorse. Because if I didn't get caught and I didn't get spanked, I'm good to go. I'm fine. I think for them, there was a little bit, like it kind of touched on it, but they simply walked away. And they didn't embrace that opportunity to say, you know what, you're right, you got me. Because they, Jesus reminding them of the purpose of the law in that one sentence would not have been new to them. They knew what the law was for. But their sinful heart simply seized the law and used it for a different purpose, to pat themselves on the back and to allow them to be merciless on other people. The law is meant to lead you to God, to the one who would save, not to push you away. And even by patting yourself on the back through pride and self-righteousness, you're simply moving further away from God. So they have this hypocrisy that's exposed to them. And then in verse 8, and once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, again, having their hypocrisy revealed, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now at this point, Jesus knows, and maybe the woman knows, that there's only one person in that scene who is sinless. And if Jesus is speaking truth, then maybe she's fearful he's going to pick up the first stone. Maybe not. But if anything, Jesus knows I am qualified to pick up this stone. Now, praise God, the story doesn't go, all right, toss it to me. Give me the rock. Let's go, baby. No, he doesn't do that. There's not even this whisper of I could, but I won't. That's how I used to parent. I could, but daddy's so nice, he won't. So love me for my mercy. You know, again, that's like pride right there, right? I want my kids to love me, see how good I am, what a good parent. I'm so compassionate. You know, don't praise God, praise me. But he doesn't do that. He just looks up, and verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? He knows where they are. Has no one condemned you? All along again, let me remind you, she has never denied her adultery. Never denied the charges. They never said, but Jesus, again, we're talking about adultery here. And Jesus doesn't say, oh yeah, I know she's an adulterous woman. She just is silent and she accepts the charges. He doesn't rub it in. There's just a clear understanding. And actually, in order for us to receive the compassion that Jesus is willing and ready to offer in abundance, that's all it simply takes. 
is a quiet, humble posture before him. God, I am the sinner. And I deserve this. But I know you are a God of compassion. And I plead for that, for your mercy to me. There's a story in John 3 you may be familiar with where a Pharisee named Nicodemus becomes so curious about Jesus and what Jesus has been teaching and something doesn't feel right. It's very unsettling for for Nicodemus. Nicodemus, on the one hand, is an expert on the law, on the Old Testament. But he realizes everything that he has learned up until now, everything that he has taught, doesn't quite sound the same in comparison to what Jesus has been talking about. So he goes to see Jesus, and he's afraid that his Pharisee colleagues are going to condemn him. So he goes at night. Now, I think that when John describes what time of day Nicodemus goes to see Jesus, I don't think it's simply to add some detail. I think it's also an indicator, because if you read John as a whole, he presents the themes of light and darkness very powerfully to reflect the condition of the heart. I think Nicodemus not only goes at night when the sun has gone down, but he goes to Jesus with a darkened heart. And in the middle of that story, we have the famous verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's mercy. To give his best for the worthless. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that he who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then John 3, 17, which maybe most people kind of stop at 16, it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. You and I, we don't need help in regards to condemnation. We've done a pretty good job but we can do nothing when it comes to compassion. And God offers that wonderfully. And when I look at this passage, we see Jesus offer compassion in every part, in every detail. But I just want to note three. The first is, this woman, this adulterous woman, no denying that, she doesn't deny it. She doesn't give any excuses, doesn't justify it. She doesn't say, oh, but have you seen him? He's really hot. I couldn't resist, just this once. No, we don't know. Maybe she lived a lifestyle of adultery. We don't know. But God's compassion to her is actually, and this is going to sound maybe a little controversial, he allowed for her sin to be exposed. You see, if her sin never gets exposed, she simply continues in that lifestyle. She's like, oh, it's fine. And I'm sure all of us have had those vices or those bad habits If you do it once, it's easy to do it a second time. If it it never gets called out, you keep doing it. But you need someone, you need something to tell you, stop, it's wrong. So this woman, however humiliating it might have been, however difficult, sure, you know, she was probably standing there, her just embarrassed um, with her sin exposed. She's there probably not dressed sufficiently. It's a really tough moment. Again, she has an opportunity where God says, you know what, I'm not going to let you continue to live in sin. I'm going to expose it. 
And she doesn't complain. She doesn't say, this is a little too much. I would have, you know, if you asked me, I probably would have confessed it. And maybe we could have dealt with it on the side. No, she just, again, very quiet, very humble. And God shows compassion by allowing that sin to be exposed, which brings her to Christ. The second form of compassion is Jesus doesn't stone her, plain and simple. He can, he has every right to, may be expected of him, but he doesn't. And when I think of myself and the sin that I bring, the sin that I hide, the sin that I want no one else to know, the sins that I remember, the sins I've yet to commit that I know I will, not that I have a list, but I know that tomorrow is going to be another life of battling sin and temptation. Yet Christ gives mercy and compassion to me. Even though my life hasn't panned out spiritually the way I had hoped or the way it should have, the scripture wonderfully tells me that if I am sincere to confess my sins, God is faithful and just to forgive me, to continue to show compassion. And the third way in which I see compassion is Jesus' compassion enables this woman to have a life of possibly living without sin. Verse 10 to 11, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus is not saying, you know what, look, it's not a big deal. Let's just forget about it. This is really awkward. You know, I, I think they were a little rough with you. We could have done this a better way. He doesn't do that. He doesn't just simply say, let's just sweep it under the rug. He doesn't say, you know what, just try harder. I think you should move. Just don't talk to men anymore. You know, you can do this. He doesn't do that. It may seem that way when you read it, but by offering his compassion... He's saying, you receive my mercy, you receive me, which enables you to be sin-free and to be victorious over it. And one of the greatest messages of the Bible to Christians is this. You have been saved in Jesus. That compassion that you have received enables you to conquer sin. No, you will not be perfect until Christ returns, but you can be victorious over sin. But the other side of that is this. If you are not in Christ, all you will do is sin and dishonor and disobey God. But the wonderful thing about that is that even to you, like he did to me and others, offers mercy. Christ offers himself to you. You think you're bad? I'm sure there are a lot of other... other, there are a lot of other people who have done worse. People who have even crucified the Son of God. And yet, what would Jesus say? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Just want to close with two verses. <clears throat> Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And lastly, 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. I hope you leave with a reminder or maybe revelation that God is a compassionate God in Christ. And maybe you have your short list of people who are hard to be merciful to. 
I know as a parent it was tough to be compassionate to my kids. I knew there were times, even when I knew it up here in the head, my heart to those who had caused so much grief in my life, not my kids, caused so much grief in my life, but they've caused me grief too, and I'm sure it's reciprocal, but um, there are people that I felt just had it out for me. And yet, though I had compassion in the mind, my heart was filled with so much bitterness, resentment. What enables me to get past that? Is it, be compassionate, I can do it today. Gosh, you can do it. No. It is being reminded of all that Christ has done for me, of the weight of sin that he bore for me in my stead. And that enables me. That gives me the strength, the power, the motivation, the desire to be compassionate to others as well. So I pray that if for you, the reminder of the gospel is where you should go, to be reminded of what Christ has done for you, so you too may love as you have been loved. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what Christ has done. Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to be compassionate to us. We thank you that even to those who, under the law of Moses, should have been stoned, you would show compassion and mercy. God, we thank you that that mercy never ceases. Lord, we confess that we struggle to be merciful to other people. As we are legalists and self-righteous and we want them to obey, irregardless of whether we have ourselves. And I pray that we would extend not the pharisaical legalism, but the grace of Christ to people who are looking for mercy. And because they find it nowhere, they just grab whatever they can. Father, thank you so much for your continual faithfulness to us, though we are so often faithless and unfaithful. Well, we want to love people as you have loved us. And may you equip us to do that through your spirit as he reminds us each and every day of the gospel and what Christ has done. In his name we pray.